Peace be with you. I say peace be with you. Maybe that peace isn't loud enough. to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my ancestral family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. here. Good morning. My name is Troy. Happy to be one of the pastors here. I want to let you know that I have less punchlines in my entire sermon than Tim Nelson did in his three minutes of verbals. 
know that going into this, it is going to be less funny. Uh, <laughs> wow, a master class in setting your own self up. That was great. Um, I hope you had a really great Easter Sunday. Um, what a celebration we had last week. The joy of those baptisms. There is no visual picture that's better for helping us see what rising to new life is all about than the sacred rite of baptism. So I'm grateful for every person who entered into those waters and helped to give us that visual reminder. What a great thing. Um, and as we continue in this season of Eastertide, I hope that every one of you are encouraged by the hope and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And that you will help us as a church to, to be accountable to continually proclaim that power and truth and hope. So, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm still buzzing from last week. We begin a new teaching series today. We're going to, over the next six weeks, we're going to concentrate on the book of Nehemiah. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that. You heard a little glimpse of that already. Now, as we've done in our previous series where we have concentrated on individual books, uh, we did Zechariah a while ago. Before that, we did the book of the Gospel of John. We spent about 34 years in the Gospel of John, if you remember. Um, as we've done in all of those series, I want to let you know that our intention is to not go word by word and verse by verse. We're not trying to cover every inch of the book. We're instead interested in how these ancient words, how they intersect with our day and age, and what characters, and what these particular characters' actions and words, what their imperfectly following after God, what all of that stuff might teach us as we imperfectly follow after whatever God is leading us to do and to be. So know that we're going to be a bit more high level. We'll dig into particular spots a little deeper, but we're not going to cover every bit. So with that said, I want to encourage you from the very beginning of this series to read the book of Nehemiah with us. It's really conquerable. It's only 13 chapters, so you could pretty easily read it in a single sitting. Here's my encouragement. Would you read the book of Nehemiah front to back one time every week? for the next six weeks with us. Just become familiar with the book. And I'm curious what that might do for you. In addition to the teachings that we have on Sunday, what does your own devotional reading highlight for you? How might the Spirit of God instruct you, teach you? What might be illuminated for you alongside of what we're trying to do on Sundays? Um, I'm just really curious what this book has for us and what it might have for you. So join us and read along with us over these next six weeks. Um, okay, as we formally start today, um, I want to try to give a little context for this book of Nehemiah. Thank goodness for page numbers, or you may never find it, right? 
And I don't know that how many of you feel familiar with the book or the person of Nehemiah. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to bring into better focus um, the historical context and some of the cultural specifics. What I want to do for us today as we start is to give a, a kind of a picture of how the book and the book's namesake, Nehemiah, where does it fit on the larger timeline of the people of God? So Nehemiah and the book that comes right before it, the book Ezra. They basically are telling the same story. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah were probably one unified book originally. Regardless, what happens here, Nehemiah and Ezra and the story that they're telling, they come right near the end of the prophetic tradition. So let me give you some dates for those of you who like history. I really like history. In the year 586 BC, a very dramatic event takes place in the then known world. Um, the entire city of Jerusalem, including the temple, is destroyed by the Babylonians and under the rule of a guy called King Nebuchadnezzar. The whole city wiped out. And part of the drama of this defeat, it involves the people of Israel being taken from their home to now live in a foreign land. They're deported. They're taken away. And they leave behind them a city that's in ruins, including the temple. The temple, which is the central image and picture of the entire religious life of the people. It's in ruins. It's been totally destroyed. Fast forward about 50 years, um, and we come to uh, 538 BC. And what happens then is Babylon is then conquered by Persia. This is a really volatile time in the land, in the known world at that point. Powers are shifting all the time. There's tons and tons of fighting. And so what happens here is a guy called Cyrus the Great, who's leading the Persian Empire, comes and conquers the Babylonians. So now there's a shift in power. And part of that changeover, what happens there, is that the people of Israel, the Israelites, are given permission by Cyrus the Great to return home. They can go back. Now, it's been about 50 years. So that means there are people who have been born while in exile who have no memory, who have never been to their previous homeland. And so what happens here is the invitation is given to the people of Israel, and some are very eager. Some really want to go back, but not everybody. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in these upcoming weeks. But there is the invitation to return home. And so some do, and they quickly get to work. They immediately rebuild the altar. And then they start putting pieces into place to rebuild everything else. They start planning. They start doing things. And then around 520 to 515, the temple is actually rebuilt. Significant, massive, something that is so important to the people of Israel. And so things start to get back to normal, kind of. The people are still under Persian rule, and they're not together. They're scattered all over the Persian Empire. So they're not a unified people. Um, And then we come 
to the beginning of Nehemiah. All that stuff is to try to help you understand where does Nehemiah come from. Um, we get a couple of other context clues at the very beginning of chapter 1. We hear these words, Nehemiah, who's narrating this part of religious history, says that it was the month of Kislev in the 20th year of a reign. And so this gives us a couple of clues where to situate this in history. So it talks about Kislev, this month of Kislev. That roughly corresponds to our November and December time frame. And the 20th year of the reign is talking about a very specific king, a king whose name is Artaxerxes, a guy who has way too many vowels and X's in his name. Artaxerxes. Now we know that as a historical figure from Greek historians, Artaxerxes, a real person, he began his reign in 464 BC. He dies of natural causes, what does it say, 424 BC. And so if we know, four, I said whatever the day, it's, you see the slides. 465, he starts his reign. 20 years into his reign situates us at 445 BC. That's where we are. We're just less than 500 years before Jesus is born under this rule and reign of this guy called Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah, at this point, gets a report from his brother, Hanani. So, the report comes, and Nehemiah is living in a place called Susa. If you want to check out this next map. Susa um, it means that Nehemiah is one of God's people who is in exile. It means he doesn't live in his original homeland. This gives you a bit of a glimpse on the map here. So uh, you see in sort of big words, uh, uh, just off center on the right, Babylonia. To the right of that, to the east, is a little town called Susa. Okay? You come farther left, over close to the water, you see Jerusalem. It's real close to Memphis. You had no idea, did you? Right? Jerusalem over there on the water, Babylonia, Susa over there. You get sort of a glimpse of how scattered people are. The journey from Babylon to Jerusalem was about 900 miles. So that would mean in Nehemiah's day, it would take 8 to 10 weeks to make that journey. In our day, that's about $13,000 in gas money. <laughs> Add another 250 to 300 miles farther at Susa, and you get a sense of how physically distant and scattered God's people are. And it's from that place, from Jerusalem, all the way over to Susa, that Nehemiah's brother has come. He's made this time-consuming and long-distance journey to bring him some news. And the news is not good. It's bad news. Things in Jerusalem are not good. There's trouble, there's disgrace, there's destruction. Even after the passage of time, under a new ruling reality, even with some of God's people returning back home, things are still in a bad way. And the entire rest of the book of Nehemiah is how Nehemiah responds to that bad news. Everything else is, what is he going to do in light of this bad news? Now, typically, this Old Testament character, Nehemiah, he's celebrated. He's one of these Old Testament leaders. He's an organizer. He's a guy who can get things done. He's held up and celebrated. That's why I think it's so interesting that the book of Nehemiah introduces us to him in the way that it does. In verse 4, 
just before what Liz was read for us, Nehemiah, who's acting again as the narrator, he says this. When I heard these things, when the report came to me from my brother, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. This strikes me. This is an unexpected way of introducing us to this swift and decisive actor in the Bible. He sits down and he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays. Those of us who are really good at addressing situations and starting things going and starting to take care of things, this might make us a little uncomfortable. Because it looks like Nehemiah has all the information that he needs. At least he's got sufficient information to start doing something. He could step into and begin acting. But what we find instead is that he sits. In fact, if we go to the very end of the chapter, we find this little detail about Nehemiah. It says that he is the cupbearer to the king. Now, that may not sound like anything big, but that is a highly prized political position. That means he was a key official in the royal household. The cupbearer tasted all of the wine before the king to make sure that it wasn't poisonous. So that means that Nehemiah was really trusted. And it means that he was held close to the king. He had intimacy. He had position. And it gives us a sense that Nehemiah wasn't a slacker. He wasn't a slouch. He got things done. He probably demonstrated that he deserved to be in this position. And that's what makes it so interesting to see him begin when he gets news to sit. I'm really struck as well that his first appeal isn't to the king. There's a problem. And he doesn't go to this earthly political power. Instead, he makes his appeal to the God of heaven. He recognizes that even this powerful ruler of the empire has limited power, limited influence, limited ability, and he appeals beyond and higher. I have this reaction too. Nehemiah's brother has come a long way, probably at great expense. He's really put himself out to show up in Susa and to bring him this news. His brother is probably hoping that Nehemiah will jump at the chance to do something. He's probably trying to enlist Nehemiah in helping solve the problem. And instead, the text tells us that Nehemiah mourns, fasts, and prays for some days. He didn't jump right into strategizing. He didn't jump right into planning. Check out this detail. Remember when I said a minute ago, Kislev, the month of Kislev, it corresponds roughly to our November, December. If you go to the beginning of chapter 2, it tells us this, that at the beginning of chapter 2 starts, it says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of King Artaxerxes. And then the rest of the chapter starts talking about how this is when Nehemiah approaches the king and he starts to lay out his desire to go back and help rebuild things in Judah. Okay, this detail in the month of Nisan. Nisan roughly corresponds to our month March. 
November and December, he begins to mourn. March, he approaches the king. It looks like for Nehemiah, for some days, actually might have been months of praying, in mourning, in fasting. It looks like there was real wrestling and real pleading for quite a while before Nehemiah sensed that it was time to put a plan into motion. Now, I'm highlighting all this stuff about Nehemiah and his opening prayer, not because I'm trying to draw out some sort of universal prescription for all people in all places and in all situations. But here's what I am suggesting. I am suggesting that it might actually be biblical to pray before you leap. It might actually be biblical to take time and pray before significant decisions. Anyone ever thought of this, heard of this, considered this? It might actually be in the Bible to pray before acting. Now, that that might not sound very profound, but we are in a day and age when quick, immediate, decisive action is celebrated above everything else. And anything less than responding immediately, that may put colorful, strong comments in your comment section. That might get you canceled. Anything less than immediately responding and acting is not celebrated in our culture. And this isn't solely coming from people outside of the Christian tradition. People who are fellow followers of God jump on the bandwagon that says, keep your thoughts in prayers. Criticizing prayer as though it is not an actual, viable, sufficient response or action. So I think it is profound that this book, which celebrates a guy who gets a lot of things done, that it begins from prayer. I don't think that it's an accident that the book of Nehemiah introduces us to the central character as someone who decides to commit to prayer in the face of serious need, in the face of serious trouble. Before he takes decisive action, he takes significant time to pray. I think that's instructive for many of us. In fact, it reminds me of a similar commitment of another man. Think about the way the Gospels narrate the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Right after he's baptized, before Jesus starts to teach, before he heals, before he begins to disciple 12 young men, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness and he fasts and he prays for 40 days. The needs were really great, and the time was way too short, and yet Jesus still prioritizes 
being with the Father, seeking, praying, fasting before he steps into significant action. The vision statement for our church is to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. And I want to tell you, I believe more than I have ever believed that this is exactly the way that we need to be focusing our time and our energies and our passions, everything. This is the target at which we should be aiming everything that we do. I believe this wholeheartedly. However, I am also convinced that we as a church, individually and together, that we need to prioritize some days around which we fast and we pray and we seek and we mourn because you and I, we are not naturally a Jesus people. We have to be made into a people that look like Jesus. And prayer is an essential pathway toward that kind of transformation. Not only that, but we are not naturally a people We are prone to wander from one another, just as we're prone to wander away from our God. There are so many reasons why we should not be unified together. And prayer is one of these things around which we prioritize. It's a discipline that we step into. It's the practices that we do together that ultimately make us more and more a unified people. I'm convinced that for us to live faithfully into this vision, we have to be a praying people. There is no shortcut around this. So I'm going to end today this sermon with this particular introduction with a call for our church to intentionally pray over the next week. Now some of you may be thinking, wait, are we talking about prayer again? I mean, haven't we been talking about prayer a lot around here lately? And the answer is yes. We are talking about prayer again. And yes, we have been talking about it a lot lately. Uh, There's this story that uh, that I really like. It's probably apocryphal, but it's cute. There's a story about a pastor who at the end of the service is waiting by the exits as people are leaving to meet and greet. And a middle school student struts on up. And the student says, Pastor, I want to know why every single week, at the exact same time in every single service, you always say the same thing whenever the Bible is read out loud. And the pastor goes, oh, well, what is it that I say every single week, every time the Bible is read out loud? And the student sighs and looks up at the ceiling and goes... The grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. And the pastor goes, that's why I say it every week. That's why I say it every week. I am convinced when I call us to praying that every single one of us is a novice as it relates to prayer. And I am convinced that every single one of us that every single one of us is encountering something that outpaces your wisdom 
and that outpaces your intellect, that outpaces your experience. I'm assuming that every single one of us has something to mourn. I'm assuming that every single one of us has something to confess. I'm assuming that every single one of us is holding something with which we feel absolutely powerless. And yet we desire that it would be fixed and healed. And so, yes, we are talking about prayer again. And yes, we are calling our church to pray yet again because we are assuming that over time, prayer will become more and more natural for us, just like that middle school student who came to know that particular truth about the Bible over time. So, here's what I'm encouraging Over the next seven days, uh, beginning today, up through this coming Saturday, I want to call our church to be united around very specific prayers. I wonder what might be realized. I wonder how we might be made more and more into a Jesus people. I wonder how we might be more unified as a people if we were to commit to and we were to focus and we were to say we are going to pray together although separately. So I'm proposing a simple direction for us and inspired by the prayer that we find in Nehemiah 1 that Liz read for us. And just an everyday encouraging um, that we would pray with a particular subject in mind, that we would have a very simple prompt around which our church would say, yes, we're going to pray. Today, um, let's join in prayers of adoration. Nehemiah begins his prayer this way. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, spend a few minutes today Naming and praising the attributes of God. No requests. No submissions. No results being sought after. Just celebrating who God is. Tomorrow, Monday. Let's join in prayers that name the promises of God. Nehemiah highlights God as a God who keeps covenant. A God who keeps promises. So name in your prayers what God has said God will do. Maybe it's the promise to be close to the brokenhearted. Maybe it's the promise that the Holy Spirit will function as a comforter. It doesn't matter to me what it is, but practice naming the promises of God. Pray the promises of God back to God. Tuesday. Let's join in prayers of intercession. Let's pray for specific people. Nehemiah names, he says he is praying for the people, for the servants who are in Israel. Let's take some time and pray. Ideally, we would pray by name with as much specificity as we can, individuals and groups of people. Wednesday, let's join in prayers that are confessional. This kind of prayer will show up again later in the book of Nehemiah. You'll see it again. But Nehemiah spends even a significant chunk of this prayer in chapter 1 in confession. Naming his own sin. Naming the sins of his ancestral family. So take some time and name whatever it is that you have done and left undone. 
and name how the body of Christ has fallen short. Thursday, let's join together and let's pray scripture. Nehemiah draws on and prays words from the book of Deuteronomy. And I think there is something so powerful about allowing the Bible to migrate from something that we primarily think about and allowing it to become part of our heart language. Practicing the Bible becoming part of your prayer language. The Bible being part of the way that you have conversation with God. So practice that. If for some of you this is a new thing, the Psalms are a very helpful place to begin. Pray a Psalm as if it were your own words. But on that particular day, on Thursday, let's pray scripture back to God. Friday, let's join in prayers that simply hold people before the Lord. This has been probably my most consistent prayer practice over the past couple of months. Sometimes I I have a hard time coming up with what to say. Particularly as it relates to people, I have a hard time finding the words. Many times I know that people are in need, but I don't know the specifics of the situation. And so rather than not praying, I've taken up the practice of holding them, naming them, and holding them before the Lord. It's a bit of an imaginative prayer practice, but I I keep my hands out like this while I'm praying. And I say the name of the person. And I imagine holding them before the throne. And I just speak their name. And I trust that God's wisdom and God's knowledge will be sufficient. So let's hold people before the Lord. And then on Saturday, finally, let's join in prayers of blessing and prayers of empowerment. Notice that Nehemiah, it's not until the very end of his prayer that he asks for God's help to do what it is that he has to do. It's not until the end of his prayer that he asks for success and favor. And so take some time. Ask God to work through you. Ask God to give you what it is that you need to do what it is that you need to do. Church, let's join together. And let's commit to praying every day over this next week. If you want to join me, I have an alarm set on my Apple phone at 8 a.m. And I'm going to spend three to five minutes. This is not going to be some long, drawn-out, monastic kind of practice. I'm going to simply and succinctly pray each one of these prompts at 8 a.m. on uh, whatever the morning is, whatever that day's prompt is. Would you join us and let's see what we might become. We're, We're going to spend the rest of this series looking at what it means to be a people who build something together. What does it mean to be a people who join forces and look at getting some things done? But let's don't rush into that. Let's follow the example of Nehemiah. Better yet, let's follow the example of Jesus himself. And let's prioritize. Let's set aside some days to pray to the God of heaven.
Let's appeal to the one who has already made heaven and earth. Let's appeal to the one who has built and established the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, under the care of Jesus. Join us as we pray. And before we come to the table, let's, let's pray together now. And let's, with boldness, pray the prayer that Jesus taught us. All together. Our Father, who is in heaven, 